This is the Meet Me at the Spot podcast, where we meet at the intersections of sexual health and the world around us. Each week, we will discuss sexual health current events, politics, social justice issues, and more. Get excited because it is time to start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Meet Me at the Spot. I'm your host, Holly, and today's episode is Let's Talk About Sex Baby. Wait, can we? And today we're going to talk about sexual health education, specifically in the United States. Let's start with some check-ins and current events updates. I'm really hoping you all have had a wonderful week and have found some ways to rest and find joy amidst what feels like a lot of chaos. I want to start with updates on the train derailment in Ohio that we discussed last week. The government of Ohio has asked the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services to send teams to assess the public health needs. Many residents have still not returned home because of concerns of exposure to toxic chemicals. It will be a long time, unfortunately, for us as the general public to see any of those results from the CDC and DHHS. It will be likely even longer to see what impacts this has had on individual health, including reproductive health. Since the last episode, the U.S. has experienced 10 mass shootings between February 17th and February 19th. Altogether, 13 people were killed and 46 injured. At least 15 of the victims were children and teens. And this is being called as the most violent, deadly weekend of 2023, and it's only February. As I mentioned last week, these mass shootings are a policy choice. We are seeing in real time that more guns everywhere is a really shitty approach that doesn't decrease violence, but in fact increases it, and at the expense of lives being lost and injured. Almost all of the states that witnessed mass shootings over the weekend do not require a license to carry a concealed and loaded gun. What is the breaking point? At what point do people sit back and say, hmm, maybe we need something different. Maybe we can look at other countries and what they're doing to reduce gun violence. Conservative anti-abortion groups have brought out a lawsuit in Texas to revoke the government approval of Mifepristone, which is one of the medications used in medication abortions. If this judge grants the request for a preliminary injunction, this would cut off access to the medication nationwide while this legal battle goes on. Now, this has a lot of consequences. It creates the path for other states to follow suit. And it leads to even more confusion around abortion than there already is. This also sets the precedent that one judge has the ability to override a federal agency's decision-making, which could set policy for the entire country. But let's end here with some good news, shall we? (laughs) Recently, there has been news coming out about promising studies for a male birth control pill. There have been previous studies that were not super promising, 
as they weren't as effective as the current birth control pill options, they took a long time to become effective, months even, and took a while, a, a couple weeks, to reverse the effects. This new pill seems to work within 30 to 60 minutes, and the effects are reversed within 24 hours. This sets the path for males to take the pill as event-driven or when they're anticipating to have sex. This is in very, very preliminary stages and likely will be a couple of years before we see pills on shelves. I'm really interested in what you all think about this, so message me on social media, send me an email, let me know what your thoughts are on male birth control pills. Before we dive into the state of sex ed in this country, let's start off with what sex education is. I think Planned Parenthood has a fantastic definition. Sex education is high quality teaching and learning about a broad variety of topics related to sex and sexuality. It explores values and beliefs about those topics and helps people gain the skills that are needed to navigate relationships with themselves partners, and community, and manage one's own sexual health. So for today's discussion, we will be focusing on what is often referred to as formal sex education. So sex education happening in schools, but also in community settings by trained health professionals. This isn't to discount informal sexual health education, which most often happens at home, but it is very difficult to collect a lot of accurate data. My personal stance is that both should be happening and both have value. Trained professionals should also work with caregivers to ensure they are comfortable talking about sex with the youth in their lives and also able to provide age-appropriate and medically accurate information. Caregivers should also be equipped with resources on where to go for more information and places within their community where youth can get services. This country has a long history with the conversations around sexual health education and what it should and shouldn't look like. In the resources in the show notes and also on my link tree, I have included two links for you to look at uh, to see the history of sex education going back to the early 1900s. When looking at formal sex education, there are currently four federal funding streams. So two are for abstinence-only programs, and two are for evidence-based and medically accurate sex education. Let's get the negative out of the way first and address abstinence-only education, which is sometimes messaged as sexual risk avoidance, which is misleading as hell. We have years and years of research to back up how ineffective these programs really are. Research shows that federal abstinence-only funding does not lower adolescent birth rates. In fact, the more that state policies emphasize abstinence-only programs, the higher the incidence of adolescent pregnancies and births. An HHS-funded analysis found that abstinence-only programs do not affect the incidence of pregnancy, HIV, or other STIs in adolescents. Young people who express intentions to wait until marriage to have sex have the same rates of premarital sex 
STIs and anal and oral sex as their peers who do not take these pledges. They're also less likely to use contraceptives, are at higher risk for HPV, and have higher rates of non-marital pregnancy compared to those who never pledged abstinence. These programs are very harmful to young people in that they do not provide adequate information about birth control, STIs, consent, or healthy communication. These programs promote fear and shame around sex. They are often extremely heteronormative and frame LGBTQ plus youth as deviant, which increases stigma and discrimination. They frame abstinence as a choice and that having sex is a failure, which is isolating and just straight fucked up for people who have been coerced or forced into sex. And these programs focus solely on risks of birth control while downplaying or overlooking the many benefits. The majority of parents and youth in this country support sex education that is medically accurate and inclusive of a broad range of topics, which brings us to discussing evidence-based programs. Decades of research shows us that when we provide young people with age-appropriate and medically accurate information, we see a decrease in sexual activity and number of partners, an increase in the use of birth control and condoms, and an increase of interest in learning about sex and feeling respected and more prepared for adulthood. So why are we seeing so much push for abstinence-only sex education across the country? Well, the answer is really simple, and it's money. Organizations that fight to promote abstinence-only programs have a shit ton of money and therefore have a shit ton of political power and influence. These are the people who are showing up to school board meetings, oftentimes not even in districts where their kids attend school, and sometimes they aren't even parents but pretend to be at the school board meetings. And they put a lot of pressure on school boards. They also have money for lobbying and influencing legislatures. There are also a lot of cultural taboos around discussing sex that aren't seen in other countries, which has led to insufficient sex education and is a main reason why the United States continues to have one of the highest rates of intended pregnancies and STIs. In the United States, sex education is left up to the states which has created a clusterfuck, to put it mildly. So 29 states and D.C. mandate sex education in some form. Even when sex education is mandated, there are so many inconsistencies and the information doesn't even have to be useful, correct, or unbiased. And in two-thirds of the states that do mandate sex education, the information doesn't even have to be medically accurate. In fact, only 18 states require any sex and or HIV education to be medically accurate. Only nine states require sex education to be culturally appropriate and unbiased. Nine states. Six states in the South either prohibit sex educators from discussing or even answering questions about LGBTQ plus identities and relationships 
or actually require sex educators to frame LGBTQ plus identities and relationships negatively. I want to look at the impacts of all this on young people. For folks who aren't aware, every two years, the CDC conducts the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance, or YRBS, to high school students. YRBS is the largest public health surveillance system in the U.S. monitoring health-related behaviors among high school students. I want to take a minute to highlight a few points from the 2019 YRBS. I also want to note that the 2021 results will be available very, very soon. Almost 90% of sexually active students used a condom or a primary contraceptive method at their last sexual intercourse encounter. However, only 9.1% of sexually active students reported having used a condom with a more effective contraceptive method which is the recommended approach for preventing pregnancy and STIs. The results from the YRBS indicate a need for discussions around contraception, including in earlier grades, such as middle school. We need increased partnerships with communities and clinics, and that is vital to addressing racial disparities in STI and HIV transmission and unintended pregnancy rates. And we need client-centered and adolescent-friendly clinics. We can also take that one step further and have those clinics be located in schools and in community settings. I've included a link if you want more information on the YRBS results. You are also able to go to the CDC. If you Google CDC YRBS, you can look at results by state and see how your state compares. The National Sex Education Standards developed by SECUS, Sex Ed for Social Change, say that sex education should begin in kindergarten. Now, this has been a controversial take as many people have very inaccurate views, which are mostly pushed by right-wing media and politicians, as to what this means. It is absolutely not about teaching five-year-olds about the act of having sex. We are not going into classrooms and teaching little children about birth control and how to put condoms on bananas and things like that. So let's really just get that out of the way. So when we go back to the earlier discussion about how sex education should be comprehensive, then we can take a step back and realize that sex education is not just talking about the act of sex. So in grades K through three, information about anatomy, consent, personal boundaries, understanding emotions, developing healthy communication skills, and respect for others should be included as part of sex education. In grades three through five, this information then would build to discuss healthy friendships and starting to discuss changes that can happen during puberty. Middle school and high school discussions should then dive deeper into puberty, romantic relationships, partner violence, STIs, and gender and sexual orientation. So this type of scaling up in information normalizes the conversations around sex and builds upon age-appropriate information and skills learned in previous years. 
When a person then gets to middle and high school, these conversations about sex don't seem to come out of nowhere, and it increases the comfortability around talking about sex, which is the goal, right? We want to reduce the taboo and stigma that is associated with sex in this country. There have also been updates to the standards to reflect advancements in research regarding sexual orientation, gender identity, social, racial, and reproductive justice, and the long-term consequences of stigma and discrimination. Other additions include advances in medical technology, the emergence of digital technologies, and the growing impact of social and sexually explicit media on relationships. If you are interested to learn more about the National Sex Education Standards, I have included a link in the show notes and on my link tree. Recently, I put out a call to my social media followers to complete a short survey about their experiences receiving sexual health in school. First, I want to pause and really thank everyone who completed the survey and those of you who shared the survey on your own social media platforms. I wanted to share a little bit of those results here. So most respondents were between the ages of 18 to 35 years of age. When asked how they would rate their education around sexual health in school, most responses were in the middle, and no one rated their sexual health education as a five, which meant very comprehensive and helpful. I asked a question about what an ideal sexual health education could look like and found that most people agreed it should be more sex positive and not just focus on diseases and pregnancy prevention, that it should be more LGBTQ plus inclusive, that it should be a lifelong discussion that is age appropriate, that there should be lessons around consent, that one came up the most, and that reproductive diseases and disorders should be discussed so that people can get diagnosed and treated at an earlier age. The majority of respondents reported getting most of their sex education as an adult from their friends. Young people are going to find information about sexual health topics if they are not given the opportunity to learn from trained professionals and supplemented with information from their family. This information will likely come from peers and the internet, which as we all know is not always accurate. With the Supreme Court decision last summer to overturn Roe v. Wade, we are seeing and will continue to see attacks on sex education. Republican lawmakers have proposed legislation to amend sex ed programs or eradicate them completely. These attacks on sex education will create even more obstacles for lower income youth, including black and brown communities, to access accurate information and access quality services, which have already had inequities. Lack of sex education leads to worse health outcomes that can impact future generations. So at this point, you may be sitting here listening to this wondering, well, Holly, the hell am I supposed to do about this? This is a lot. I understand. First, learn about what state and local legislation exists where you are. Contact elected officials at all levels to tell them to support progressive 
and comprehensive sex education legislation. Plan to start attending school board meetings to advocate for more comprehensive and inclusive sex education. And if you are a parent to a young person, ask them what they're learning about in school. Recognize, though, that you do not need to do this work alone. Start to form coalitions or join existing coalitions to work together on this. Again, I've included a link to a state legislation tracker for sexual and reproductive health topics in the show notes and on the link tree. Our word of the week is privilege. Privilege is defined as a right or immunity granted as a peculiar benefit, advantage, or favor. Privilege is not a bad word, and it doesn't imply that you haven't worked hard. It simply means that there are aspects of someone's identity that put them at a greater advantage than others. Privilege can be tricky because some people might have certain privileges in some areas, but not in others. So this really goes back to our discussion on intersectionality a couple episodes back. When we think about privilege in terms of sexual reproductive health, there is privilege in accessing accurate sexual health education, as we've discussed in great detail during today's episode. There's privilege in accessing sexual health services, including preventative care like pap smears and access to contraception. There is privilege in being able to access abortions. Keep in mind that even when Roe was the rule of the land, it never fully protected Black people or poor people or disabled people, a lot of other people. Legality does not equal accessibility. In order to get sexual health care, one must figure out how to pay for services. Do they have health insurance? Do they have to take time off from work? Get child care? What about transportation? Is it even safe for me to go into this clinic? If you have never had to worry about any of this stuff when accessing any kind of medical care, and specifically around reproductive care, That's privilege, my loves. If you are listening and you're not worried really about laws to prevent gender-affirming care for transgender people, specifically youth, if you're really not worried about laws that are working to overturn same-sex marriages or access to birth control and, and more, then you have experienced privilege. Instead of us arguing over the term privilege and feeling offended by it, those of us in positions of power and who have privilege must work to uplift the voices of those who do not have those same privileges. As a white woman who works in reproductive justice spaces, my job is not to center myself, but to listen to Black people, specifically Black women, 
black trans people and hear what they have to say and what they need. And to use my privilege, in this case, my whiteness as a privilege, the color of my skin, and the fact that financially I am able to afford to do things, using those privileges to advocate for others, to attend marches and rallies, to do lots of activism and advocacy work. As we wrap up this week's episode, I want to highlight that I do now have a podcast guest interest form that is available. Yay! This can be found in the show notes and in my link tree. If you're interested in being a guest on this podcast, go to the link and fill out the form. I am really looking forward to having guests, and I don't want you to be shy and think you have to be some sort of podcast expert. I'm excited to talk with folks who are knowledgeable and passionate about sexual and reproductive health, and also about other topics that intersect with sexual and reproductive health. Please feel free to fill out that form. I would love to have you on my podcast as a guest. It's a very short form to fill out, so please, please, please do it. I'm so thankful for everyone who listens and follows along with this show. This has been absolutely amazing so far to have the opportunity to make my dream a reality. I would love for folks to share the podcast on your own social media platforms as I really want to get the word out. Also, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Let's end today's episode on a quote from Dale Carnegie. Inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit home and think about it. Go out and get busy. Until next week, bye! Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Meet Me at the Spot Podcast. Do you love the show and want to support the podcast? Well, check out the show notes for all the ways to support the work I do. All links related to today's episode can also be found in the show notes. Help others find this podcast by following me and leaving a review. And also spread the word on social media. See you next week when we meet at the spot.